Okay, so we have a bit to cover this morning. <coughs> we want to start um, and, and not spend too long with this dimension of Upeka because in a way, as John says, it is somewhat self-evident, but it's useful to look at um, uh, some of the obstacles that arise in cultivating Upeka in this area and actually how important it is. So I'll start with something from the Buddha. Praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, success and failure are the eight worldly winds. They ceaselessly change. As a mountain is unshaken by the wind, so the heart of a wise person is unmoved by all the changes on this earth. So we do see that none of us are exempt from these winds, but of course we have differing reactions to them. Praise, success, pleasure, gain, we embrace with delight and often with grasping. Blame, failure, pain, loss, we fear and resist and we often become agitated. So uh, the way that that agitation, I think, mostly manifests in our lives is endeavoring to rearrange the conditions of our life so that we are shielded from what we, the extremes that we feel that we cannot embrace and so that we feel most uh, in a good position to get the success and the pleasure and the gain and the fame. Now, this agitation, of course, leaves us considerably exhausted. Um, In fact, we can see the endlessness of conditions and the endlessness of agitation that can go alongside of them. So there is a kind of an ideology, of course, underlying this, that the well-being of our hearts depends upon the world of events and conditions and we should be indeed exempt from the first ennobling truth. We have to keep looking at this tendency to exempt ourselves because as long as we are caught in that tendency to exempt ourselves, we will live in a world of agitation and this is actually what this teaching really asks us to question. Um, We fall into the shoulds, the world of shoulds, how things should be, how other people should be, how I should be. And in a way, this word should, it kind of articulates the argument we have with conditions. Um, Now, the insight part of equanimity, I think, in this dimension of experience, of events and experience, I think the insight part of equanimity in this is is actually deeply, deeply understanding the reality and the actuality of impermanence that we actually really don't hold in our hands the fullness of power to dictate the way in which the world of conditions will unfold. Equanimity knows about dukkha rather than refusing it. It also knows about non-self, anatta, that when the world of conditions doesn't work out quite the way we think it should, we don't actually take it so personally. That it's not necessarily my fault that I haven't tried hard enough to rearrange the conditions or been successful enough Equanimity does know, the insight part of equanimity does know that we do hold in our hands the tools and the developed capacity, the trained capacity to respond to the world of changing conditions rather than reacting them. So the insight part, I think, knows a very distinct difference between the events and the conditions and our reactions to them. These are not the same essential part of mindfulness, essential part of sati. When there is a clinging to events, there is a shaping of the sense of selfing in that moment. 
Sadness clung to, I am sad. Disappointment clung to, I am disappointment. And as we've already pointed out, that craving and aversion are very much the conditions of clinging. So the equanimity rests deeply, I think, upon the understanding of anatta. Um, As long as I place myself repeatedly at the center of experience as the assumed controller, I have basically set myself up to be knocked off balance. Events touch us deeply. There is sadness in many events. There is sorrow. The events, though, are not what knocks us off balance. What knocks us off balance is actually the craving and the aversion. Notice how the eight worldly winds that Christina has uh, outlined to you are all attached to the notion of self. Praise and blame, success, failure, etc. These are all attached to the self. Um, it's the self that's continuously thrown off balance. Uh, I came across a little rubric. Um, I wish I'd written it myself uh, a couple of years ago, um, which actually was, um, I think, a very good version of Vipeka. It says, relax, nothing is under control. <laughs> I don't think I really need to say any more. Because actually the tension, the unrelaxedness in life uh, that we often experience, particularly in relationship to these worldly winds, is all attached to the notion of self. The Buddha describes the self, and I know we've spoken quite a bit about the self so far, the self as we fixate on it, as we contract. Um, I mean, the self, the way the Buddha describes it, is a contraction. It's something that we contract around, almost congeal around. Uh, and take it as being something real. And the Buddha describes this contraction as being like a dog tied to a post, and all it can do is run round and round and round it. He says this in one of the suttas in the Majjhimanakaya, that we're just like this post nailed into the ground with a dog running round and round and round it, and that's the way we circulate. And so the worldly winds always circulate around this notion of the self. Agitation comes almost immediately, uh, in a sutta in the Sangyutta Nikaya, in the Connected Discourses, he says, you know, the self is an agitation, the self is a palpitation, and finally the self is a conceit. Yeah. I get the feeling he doesn't really like it. <laughs> but as you can see, all of the agitation that arises mostly in our lives is often particularly in relationship to these uh, evanescent, almost ephemeral things which were arising and passing and arising and passing. Success will come and success will go. Failure will come and failure will go. Uh, however we define these, you know, praise will come and praise will go. Blame will come and blame will go. All of these things are coming and going and coming and going and yet there we are buffeted almost like a pinball you know, in a machine just being bounced around. Um, by the praise and blame, by the success and the failure, and, you know, and all of the other worldly winds that are mentioned as well. Uh, there is, again, no freedom in this. We're just buffeted, literally, by the winds. Um, we don't stand steadfast. Notice the image that the Buddha uses of the mountain not being swayed by the winds. That's equanimity. Equanimity is not swayed by anything that happens to it. You know, it can be buffeted, it can you know, have the horrendous storms of blame and praise and all of these things, and it's not swayed one iota uh, in either direction by what happens. But as long as we're deeply attached to a notion of a self, um, which is the subject of the praise and blame of the success and the failure, um, then, of course, we're going to continue to be buffeted and the agitation is going to arise continuously. So the next domain of of Upeka, which I think is one to be closely examined, is in the realm of human relationship. Because clearly this is the place in our life where we are both most vulnerable and where we are probably very easily knocked off balance. We have longings to be connected for intimacy, 
we can often feel apart and not know how to fulfill those longings. We can be as unwise in love as we can be in hatred. I think there is a tendency in, in our minds to polarize these two in the sense of thinking, well, okay, this path is moving away from ill will and towards greater love. In one sense, we could say this is true, but we can see in that polarization how we can become actually as an infatuated and unwise in love as we can be in ill will. Um, to be able to bring a greater sense of friendliness, care, affection, metta into our lives, I think is one of the great arts of a human being. And yet we can be knocked off balance by love as much as we can by hatred. We see how that aspiration, which is very genuine, very worthy, very noble, can get surrounded by, again, the very familiar features of protecting, defending, fearing of loss, clinging. And it is interesting in the infatuation with love as much as in the infatuation with ill will or hatred, there is a common bond shared in a way, in that infatuation, not the loving itself, but in in that infatuation with love or hatred, both share the bond of seeding inner, inner, inner sufficiency to the object, the person of our passions. And here we become knocked off balance. In seeding that inner sufficiency to the person or the object of our passions, we can experience actually the same inner events in both extremes. We become preoccupied, we become obsessive, we go in loops, we try to hold. And, you know, strangely, of course, we are as married to the person we dislike as the person we care for, sometimes even more so, in truth. We often think far more about our hurts and our injuries than what is well in all our relationships. So equanimity, as we've so, I hope, so strongly pointed out, is not about indifference. It's not about stifling emotional connection. But it's very, very concerned with discovering what I would refer to as much freedom and wakefulness within our emotional world as we have within our psychological world or any other dimension of our lives. We, we see the ways in which we feed infatuation with love and hate just as we feed entrancement with any other area of our life, with thought, with preoccupation, with obsession. We're kind of practicing a kind of abandonment, I think, of inner sufficiency, and the outcomes are predictable. There's, I think, a very real question that exists in all of our lives of what does equanimity actually mean in our closest relationships? What does it mean in our most distant relationships? What does it mean in our relationships that are not featuring the spikes of love and hate? Certainly, equanimity does not imply indifference. It does not imply a withdrawal of care but it does imply a withdrawal of enchantment. And I think the way that the Buddha speaks about enchantment is is particularly valuable. The sense of being under a spell, the spell of our own obsessions, the spell of our own preoccupations. Disenchantment is actually a withdrawal of projection. It's a withdrawal of the projection that says, you know, you hold either the power to make me very happy and make me feel very worthy, or you hold the power to make me deeply unhappy and feel very unworthy. This power actually does not lie in anybody in our lives. It actually does lie in our own hearts. 
we can also really learn to accept more and more deeply, I think, the, the reality that we simply cannot control the hearts and minds of another. We cannot change the ways of another's mind and heart. We can only change our own. And someone I worked with, and I think some of you have heard me say this before, expressed this so clearly. He said in his relationship with a son he deeply loved, who was also uh, deeply addicted to drugs, that he did everything in his power to care, to bring what was needed into that situation. And there came a point, he said, when he realized that all of his care was not going to change the ways of his son's heart and mind. And the way he described it, he described it as going into an art gallery and seeing a painting of a a mother standing on a riverbank watching as her child was swept away by the currents. And she had no arms in this painting. And he said it was not that he stopped caring, but he truly realized the impossibility of changing another's heart and mind. And I think John expressed this so clearly in the Opeka phrases that he used the other day, yesterday, which clearly come, you know, into the field of human relationship, that I care for you deeply, but sadly, I cannot keep you from distress. It's holding that, that, that paradigm to be able to care, but not to feel that somehow if I just tried harder, I could change the ways of another's heart and mind. We know this in our own experience that another person really doesn't have the power to change the ways of our heart and mind. They can contribute care, learning, affection. But ultimately, that power is in our hands or in the hands of another. The words that you are the owner of your actions and their consequences or their fruits, these are not words of blame. These are not words of blame or dismissal or condemnation. But they are words that describe the reality of our lives. We know how often in our own minds and hearts, words and actions arise from deeply embedded tendencies that often take us very far from where we want to be. And they are inwardly generated, just as the Brahmapahayas are inwardly generated. And what we are doing is, is to create a new marriage, not a preoccupation or blame for what is arising, but actually for changing some of those ways and those patterns quite simply through what is cultivated. But Upeka rests upon this understanding, this very deep understanding of how little we are in control of another. We can't even control our own minds. There is a certain arrogance, isn't there, in thinking or conceit, in thinking, (coughs) I can do this for another. (coughs) I think one of the things that's worth pondering (coughs) is how often the care um, that Christina is speaking about often slips into control. Yeah. It moves so easily and so rapidly from the care expressed as a heartfelt connection with the other into wanting to control all of the things that Christine has already mentioned about wanting to control another's heart and mind, direct their actions, save them from themselves, all of these kind of phrases and expressions that we often, that I often hear actually from people. I wished I could save him from himself or her from herself. It's quite, a, it's quite a big thing to relinquish, and this is part of equanimity itself, is to relinquish um, this idealization that we can actually begin to affect and save another. Yeah? Even the Buddha says that I cannot 
you know, I cannot help, help, I cannot save others, I can only show them the way to do it for themselves. That's all they can do. Yet, as Christina mentioned, the arrogance that we often have of wanting to do this. Now, there's a phrase which occurs, and I think I might have even mentioned it so far in this retreat, uh, that occurs is to do actions without concern of the fruits. Yeah, that's a big relinquishment. That's a big renunciation, actually, to engage in action, to be engaged in caring actions towards another without actually being attached to the fruits and the outcome of them. So in other words, we do our best, but that is all we can do. And we really should not be attaching ourselves to actually wanting and trying to determine an outcome, because that may never happen, particularly with the hearts and minds of another that can be so set against any form of change, particularly when they're deeply embedded in some kind of habitual behavior. So equanimity is twofold here. It's this the relinquishing, it's this renunciation of the fruit and the settling into a position of allowing the other, the allowing the other to be. You know, even, that, if, even if that is destructive and actually very distressing to see, you know, we should allow the other to be rather than trying to relate through control. Because control, if we think about it again, and I know this keeps coming back, uh, it comes back to the self of how I want you to be. Yeah. How I want you to be. It's a huge learning curve to actually um, relinquish that sense of I want you to be this way, however you have to find your own way. You have to find your own way through life. There is huge equanimity here in this particular dimension of human relationship. But as I say, be careful about how easily the language of care slips into the language of control and trying to negotiate another's destiny in many ways. I think in moments when we really face the sorrow and pain in those we love in all the world, and when we face sorrow and pain in ourselves, I, I think we are really asked, equanimity really asks us to make our home in a very, very deep understanding of the way things actually are. The first ennobling truth, none of us are exempt. And sorrow and pain are part of a mandala of life in which there's constant change, insecurity and uncertainty. Part of living in a mandala of conditions which can come together many moments in our lives that can be deeply difficult and challenging. It is as it is. These are not statements of resignation or despair. They can be. But it is as it is. It's actually also a statement of our aligning ourselves with the understanding of the first ennobling truth. And my own sense is that knowing and living in the light of the way things actually are is actually what allows us to find that perhaps small, still space of inner refuge that allows us to respond to pain with metta, with anakampa karuna, and with equanimity. I think in my own experience, far more effective responses than resistance, blame, control, and agitation. This is what life asks of us, is metta, compassion, mudita, and equanimity. Do we move on? Go ahead. You said. I was just reflecting again on the notion of, of care here because I think this is such an important notion because care is obviously is, is part of the um, it's part of the nexus, it's part of the concatenation of metta, karuna, anukampa. It comes sometimes even in the joyfulness that we can feel at the good fortune of others. However, 
that language, that um, notion of the care that we can feel, which is arising through the connectedness of the heart in friendliness and, and, and compassion, for want of a better word at this stage, kindness, can so easily slip into wishing to control another. And in a way, what this shows us is actually that there isn't the connection there that there isn't really the heartfelt connection. There is a disconnection, ultimately. We might start off with that feeling, but when we're still embedded um, in self-concern, because this is often how it expresses itself, it expresses itself out of a feeling of self-concern that I want you to be in a particular way. And particularly, I mean, this is, you know, I'm not condemning this by any means. We see people engaging in destructive behaviors and we want them to be otherwise. You know, we want that person who is addicted to a substance or something like that to give it up because we can see the devastating effect it has on their lives. Yet, the ability to relinquish, you know, once, um, to relinquish that trying to determine the outcome of my caring. I care for you deeply enough, so you must let go of this. (laughs) What happens when that doesn't occur? When the person remains entrenched in their habit? We see the flip side of that so-called care is it often comes into anger. Real, really strong anger that arises. I think when we see that occurring, we still know, of course, that we're attached to the outcomes. The self is still very, very operative, that I have a particular investment in seeing an outcome, you giving up the substance or giving up the destructive behavior or the ways that you engage in self-abuse in some senses. You know, we have a particular we have a particular determination that that happens. And when it doesn't, it's like the thwarting of our will. Our will has been thwarted. This actually, although it might have started off in the seeds of friendliness and kindness and that, when the self is still involved, it so easily slips over into this scenario that I'm describing. It's something to watch out for in our relations with others, because actually it's, a, it's not real relationship, it's disconnect. You know, I want you to be in a particular way. And often, and I'll just say this for reflection more than a statement, I want you to be in a particular way for me. There is no equanimity in that, because when you're not for me in that way, then I lose balance. I slip into the aggression, I slip into the hatred, I slip into the anger so easily. And so I think this is worth watching out for in our relationships, be it little things or big things, in the way that we try to determine the way the other is in our lives. Yeah, Yeah, okay. Okay, so we, we want to speak a little bit about this last domain of equanimity, which is the way in which equanimity, upeke, is used interchangeably with nibbana, and sometimes presented in the, in the phrasing of the signless deliverance of the heart or the signless deliverance of the mind. Now, I, we really beg your forbearance in this because usually we would dedicate a week or <laughs> to this subject and we have half an hour. So this is a little bit of a bus tour. Um, give you something to reflect on as you go home. So I would like to draw on one of the Odanas in praise of equanimity. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who does not cling, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming or going. Where no coming or going is, there is no arising or nor passing away. 
There is neither this world nor a world beyond nor a state between. This verily is the end of suffering. The unshakable insight, I think, that manifests is actually the unshakable insight that also manifests an unshakable metta joy, um, anukampa karuna. It is really a very deep exploration of how we are the architects of our experience the way in which moment to moment through perception, perception drawing on associations, associations in turn drawing on underlying tendencies that have been co-linked with those perceptions in the past, we are constantly constructing our world moment to moment. What is the sign? The sign are the names that we place upon fluid changing processes that turn them into static objects that reify things. The bell, the clock, the glass, the person, uh, me. Uh, it is the, the, the sign is the name through which we uh, kind of compartmentalize and fragment the world, into a very personal relationship of what it means to me. Now, clearly, we cannot do without perception, and we are not suggesting we do so. Of course, perception is the way, uh, the part of psychological process that allows us to navigate our way through this life. So it is simply useful. But, this is a big but, perception is not innocent. Perception comes to the party with a big family. (laughs) How I have seen this before, how I've seen you before, what that means to me, give a just totally innocuous example. You come here, you don't know people, but you do happen to notice the person who's always at the front of the food line. You see them a week later, five days later. Do you see that person? Or do you see the person who is always at the front of the food line? That in turn touches upon, uh, we see the world of association being brought into the present moment. We see the past actually being brought into the present moment through the process of association. Association is again also closely linked with how we feel about it, our reactions to them. I don't like that person. It annoys me. It irritates me. We are freeze-framing the world. We are building our world of experience moment to moment. Um, This is called sign-making. You have much to say about this, I am sure. Yeah, the problem is trying to cut it down. (laughs) Uh, Just a little bit of background before I say what I want to say about this particular dimension. Um, first of all, one of the suttas, one of the main suttas where the signless deliverance of the mind is mentioned, which is in the Majjhima Nikaya, in the middle-length discourses, uh, the discourse actually isn't delivered by the Buddha. It's delivered by Sariputta, um, the, one of the Buddha's chief disciples. And as on many of these occasions, Sariputta gives his pronouncements and says what he thinks, and the Buddha goes, well said, Sariputta, I couldn't say it any better myself. Um, so... The concern here in particular, in this particular sutta that I'm thinking of, the concern here is with our embeddedness in language. Yeah. And just again, a little bit of background to this. Indians were very, very concerned about language um, at a very early date. Uh, Very concerned about how language operated, how we, in some senses, were immersed in language and what it did to us. 
So much so that um, the Sanskrit language was the first language to actually have a formal grammar. Okay. It was the first language to actually have it all laid out grammatically. And this occurred about a couple hundred years after the Buddha's death. But even before that, there was this concern about our immersion in language. How it led us astray. What did it do? How did it re relate to reality? Well, bearing in mind, of course, that the tenor of all of the Buddha's teachings, including those of his disciples, is practical. Um, the, the deliberations that go on in this particular sutta are about, for example, the nature of signs. Now, that all might sound very abstract, but we live in a world of signs. Yeah. The signs which language gives us, but also the signs that are there in our culture. And there are a lot of enculturated signs. You know, hand a bunch of flour to somebody on two different occasions, and it can mean two completely different things. You know, it can mean commiseration at a bereavement, you know, for example, taking them to a funeral, or it could mean celebration at a wedding. Yeah. There are two different, you know, two different things, two different signs, two different ways of signifying. Now, what was said in this particular sutta, and this is the reason why it's so important, is actually signs are never neutral. Signs are always signifiers, actually, in our habitual forms of perception. I'm deliberately truncating myself here as I'm saying this. In our forms of perception, signs are always attached to signs of aversion and signs of desire. Yeah. things we want and things we don't want. So when the Buddha, or Sariputta in this particular case, talks about the signless deliverance of the mind, he's not talking about something abstruse, he's not talking about something metaphysical, he's not talking about something mystical. He's talking about the way the mind can release itself from this constant bombardment of the signs which are around us, which are actually embedded in our language, which are all signifiers of desire and aversion. That is the task which is being engaged in. Now, the coming to rest of the sign is what we call nirvana. When we're released, doesn't mean we cease to use language, doesn't cease, mean we cease to use uh, the signifiers and the signs that are around us, but we, we don't invest them with desire and aversion. Now, I'll pause there and let Christina say some more, and I'll perhaps pick this up a little bit later, because it is actually very profound, what's being said here. It's actually very late in the day, isn't it, on a retreat to be talking about something like this. <laughs> Christina. Well, I actually feel like I said it the best I could. But anyway, I have another stab at it. <laughs> we actually see the way that the sign or the name comes to represent a reality, something that is static, that is fixed. You are, that is, I am. So that whole underlying world of how we have constructed that reality actually becomes quite hidden. It just fades into the background. It is almost saying, I know. I know. I know who you are. I know what that is. Now think of that statement, I know. It kind of signals the end of learning, doesn't it? Doesn't allow anything to be seen anew doesn't allow another person to change and unfold, and actually think of what it does to ourselves. It is not only that we construct a reality moment to moment, we then slot that in place, and that is the end of the story. I am. You are. That is. So in a way, it's almost the way that the mind is operating in this construction in which it is desperately actually seeking to know, to be able to put a sign on things because that's actually what makes us feel in control of conditions because I know it. Therefore, I don't have to learn. I don't have to ask the question, what is this? Or who are you? Or who am I? 
So there's almost a desperate search in life to actually know things. Now we have a whole kind of long, long history of what we know, the way that our perceptions, our signs are traveling actually the same neural pathways as memory. So this constant reinstatement of that reality. I see you again and I reinstate the reality that I have imposed upon you because actually that makes you familiar. But that's also also a reinstatement or almost a reification of the craving and aversion that John is speaking about. I not only know who you are, I know how to react to you. I know that I can avoid I need to avoid you. I know that you're offering me something. I know that you're a source seem to be a source of pleasure or a source of pain. So in a way, this sign making is not only kind of um, you know, designating the world into a familiar relationship to us, but it is also reifying our reactions to them. This is what we call mistaking the world of appearances for reality. The most toxic part of this, which is why we keep, it is no surprise, is it then, that we can't walk in the same circles over and over again, traveling the same reactive pathways, because that is the world that has been constructed. So you can see that the sign-making is actually really a denial of much of the Buddha's teaching as long as we are lost within it. It is a denial of the three characteristics, particularly it's a denial of anicca and anatta. Um, it, it is imagining my world is the absolute truth, the world that has been constructed. It is almost the end of the learning path. It is almost the end of the learning path. Bearing in mind, as long as our reactions are also so closely associated with the signs, Upeka disappears because I'm going to be again and again in a place of being for and against, wanting, not wanting, avoiding, pursuing, because the reactions are actually built into the sign. They're not something separate. They then become built in to the name, to the signifier, to the way all things have been placed and reified and solidified in our life. So this is a huge thing that the Buddha is talking about, because he's saying... You know, just a, you know, to really question, actually, our notions of the way things are. <laughs> that our notions of the way things are may be views. Views that have been built upon this whole linkage between perception, association, or memory, the reactions linked to those, that this is the world of our views. So what the Buddha is actually saying, and you know, we don't use this word, we don't like the word emptiness, and John doesn't like the word emptiness. But but signifies something for me. What is it to go through our life, but in a different way? To certainly have the navigation signs, it's very useful for me to know the bell is something to ring and not to drink from. It's very, it's very useful, I know my address. I mean, to, to go through life with the navigation signs, but with that ongoing questioning of where the difference between the navigation signs and the signifiers of something, because that is where we are positing the self into all things and doing just the same as we do with ourselves, saying this is the way things are. No, this is the way I see them. This is the way I view them. This is the way I believe them to be. Think of what it would be like to go into all of our relationships, all of our moments, all of our sittings, all of our walkings with, I don't know. I don't know. Think of the implications of that in our life. It kind of uproots our world. It doesn't make us fearful or anxious, but it does uproot this tendency to reify, solidify, to invest self in all things. Think of our own name, you know, how that becomes the, stand, the hallmark, the standard bearer of who I am. 
how often we don't even probe in, underneath those kind of inner reifications of who I am that are rooted in the, the endless repetition of what we believe ourselves to be. This is quite, quite a profound awakening that the Buddha is speaking about. Because it speaks to every aspect of delusion, confusion, avidya, you know, in, the, in the path. It's actually coming to what is actually called wise view. Yes, echoing what Christine is saying about uh, the profundity of, what being, of what's being said here. I think we've only got to think of how we're completely and utterly immersed in a world of signs and language. Yeah. So much so that one German philosopher, Martin Heidegger, actually says that we're, ever talk- we're forever talking. We never stop talking. You know, we talk when we're, for example, silent. We talk when we're reading. And we even talk when we're in bed, <laughs> sleeping. We're always talking. We're kind of immersed in the world of language. And of course, when we start talking about the world of language, we talk- start talking about a world of signs. Even silence itself can have different qualities. When you're saying something, perhaps trying to express something, and somebody is absolutely silent, what does it signify? When you're really trying to say something heartfelt and they don't respond. So silence itself is part, in a way, of our language. So we're constructing, and the big story, which I'm not going to go into, but the big story has to take us back into the whole role of perception. Actually, the third of the aggregates, the perceptual aggregate, the perceptual or discriminatory aggregate, that works primarily with language, and it works primarily with memory. No good having language if you haven't got memory. Yeah. You can't remember what, what a sign was used to actually signify here. Yeah. Um, the actual technical definition in the Abhidhamma of, of perception is to actually to mark an object with something so that it can be re-perceived. Yeah. And that's what we're doing continuously. Now this is fine up to a point, and the point is when we start to construct this is the way the world is this is the way you are yeah. I see you as this particular person in fact I can give you a rundown you're this type of man, have you this said to you? you're this particular type of person yeah. you're quiet, you're this, you're calm, you're agitated and there's something inside of you going actually no <laughs> Now, what we see in that very simple instance is the attempt by the use of language to pin down existence. It's like trying with language, it's a bit like pins through butterflies, trying to look for life within something which is pinned down. And language is continuously doing this. Language and signs themselves are, of course, in, you know, using later Buddhist thought, they're actually empty. They're empty of any intrinsic existence in themselves. They are relative. They are conventional. They are conventions that we use. You know, and conventions change. As we know, just inhabiting the English language, it changes. You know? Um, it slips and slides, words move, they pick up new connotations. And yet this fixed world with which language presents us, our seemingly known world, is actually an illusion. Everything I can say about a person never gets to them. Never actually allows us to see them. So that if we really want to know another, we know it only through direct perception, not through our linguistic constructions of another. If we want to know the world in a way we cease to chatter about it. And the silence that uh, we can know the world in is a silence completely different from the silence of the signification. It's actually the stilling of concepts. It's the stilling 
of our attempts to construct through our signs, our signifiers, our language. Now, this is hugely profound that the Buddha is speaking about this. You know, it's getting to the very heart, to the very, uh, to the very center of what language is doing and what signs are doing. And at the end, coming back to what I was saying earlier on, we're always, of course, signifying desire, craving, aversion, and all of the manifest, all of the manifold varieties of the craving and aversion. When we exist in that world where signs are pulling us and pushing us constantly in these ways, then there is no equilibrium. There is no equanimity. Despite being extremely extremely critical of the advertising industry, the advertising industry understands this extremely well. Because when you present, I don't know, a picture of a new car, and you don't actually have to say that much about it, just a few words with an image, it, it actually represents all kinds of desirable things. Not just the object itself, but what it represents. Things like success, status, all of these things. Now, if you take that down quite a number of notches, all of our language is in some way doing this. All of the signifiers that we see around is constantly pulling us into activities of craving and aversion. I'm using those particularly. It's much more subtle than that, but I'm just using these as being the the most extreme forms. And craving and aversion. And yes, it seems real because it's held in place by language. Now, when Sariputta, when the Buddha speaks about the signless deliverance of the mind, it's the mind that no longer attaches itself and holds to those constructs. Continues to use language. I mean, after all, the, the suttas are completely in language. Yeah, they're spoken. But they become more indicators rather than, or maps rather than the way things are. And many of you will probably have come across this famous Nagarjuna thing, you know, never mistake the finger pointing for the moon for the moon. Yeah. This is what is actually indicated here. They are indicators, they are ciphers, but they are not reality. They are not the way things are. There is a very big difference between something being an indicator and being a designator. Indicators are fine. Designators are the way of reifying things. I'm going to rip off a couple of quotes actually from John, but actually he got them from someone else, so I feel okay about it. (laughs) First one's from Wittgenstein. It says, words deliver us a picture and the picture holds us captive. Think about that. We can imagine this kind of questioning of our worldviews and our designations to be very um, frightening or anxiety-producing, not to be engaged in the endless process of knowing and putting things in place. For some people, that creates enormous kind of anxiety about, you know, how, how then will I respond if I don't respond from my familiar repertoire of association? But actually, the reason why the Buddha praises Upaka in this way, the signless deliverance of the mind, because it is actually what allows the world to be, first of all, on a very core level, just seen afresh every moment, including ourselves. But it is what allows us to see this world of conditions and process as this fluid, moving, changing, unfolding, unknown universe that can touch us deeply, in which we can learn, in which we develop all of the other... In a way, it opens the door for all of the other Brahmaviharas. It's what allows us to respond with kindness, with friendliness, with metta, what allows us to appreciate for sure to find joy within it. It's what allows for the trembling of the heart. 
And actually, the last one I'm going to rip off is from Blake. It says, if the doors of perception were cleansed, the world would appear as it is, infinite. You have one more. You have counting down. <laughs> Three. Actually, I thought when Christina said she had got a couple of quotes that she ripped off me, she was going to use my other favourite Wittgenstein quote, which I must give to you before you go, which is, he says in his philosophical investigations, he says, I have a strange feeling that the self is merely a grammatical error. <laughs> you know, in other words, it's just a result of our particular languages. That's all. And yet we attach so much importance to it because it's constantly reified in the language we use. Virtually every sentence that we use has an I embedded in it. I am happy, I am sad, I am this way, I am that way, I think this, I think that. Gosh, no wonder we have this sense of the I. <laughs> you know, we keep getting it repeated to us again and again and again. It's like the sort of implicit metaphysics of our language. The coming to rest of all this is actually used, there's another phrase which is used in the suttas, which is the coming to rest of the manifold. Yeah. The manifold is the multiplicity that is seemingly presented to us by language, with all its you know, signs of wanting this and not wanting that, you know, desire and craving and aversion and irritation and all the things that are arising. Uh, which is actually a lot of us being just being played with. We think, as you know, I think again, a nice quote from Heidegger: "We think we speak language; language speaks us." Yeah. In other words, it determines as our ways of being by constantly speaking through us, in many ways, because we're so immersed in it. So we find ourselves engaging in activities. The coming to the rest of the manifold is the coming to rest of that language speaking through you. We begin to move instead into what I feel is the field of equanimity, us beginning to use language rather than us being buffeted by the signs and the, and the language that we inhabit at the moment. Yeah. There becomes a completely different relationship to that. There is rest, there is repose, there is ease within that. There is often more silence than there is words. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Yeah. A lot of our world is filled up with language that doesn't need to be. Yeah. Empty verbiage. Yeah. Filling, up, filling up space. Yeah. Yet when we see, when we're in this state of engaged equilibrium, I, I, and that's the way I really translate equanimity, engaged equilibrium, engaged balance, then we cease to have to be constantly verbalizing everything. The activities themselves will speak. The kindness that is manifest in the gesture, the kindness that is manifested in the look and the doing is probably far more than all of the words that can be uttered about it. Clearly, we could say a good more, a good deal more, but I think this is where we end, actually. So, if we just could have just one, a few moments, just quietly together. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who does not cling, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. Where no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. 
where no coming or going is. There is no rising nor passing away. There is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between. This verily is the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.